0: All right. Let's turn in your Bibles to, uh... well, let me find where my reference here. I've lost it. Hold on. Talk amongst yourselves for a second. (laughs) Yeah, I feel a lot better. Go to Hebrews 10. When in doubt, just pick a verse. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 30, for we know him that hath said, vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of a living God, of the living God. So we are talking about God's righteousness, his righteous character, his holiness. We've talked about several things as far as defining this, um, and this is on the heels of us understanding his love and his goodness. Um, But we have seen under this, Aspect of talking about his righteousness, that his righteous character is his very nature itself. Uh, When we talk about righteousness, uh, we're not talking about some standard above God, some kind of karmistic, pantheistic idea that there is this impersonal law above God that God uh, must act in accordance with. Uh, that's false. Uh, there, there is no, it, whatever, whatever is above God would be God. Um, and God would be its subject. And God is overall. There is nothing that is not under his rule and his authority. So we don't believe in some kind of pantheistic, karmistic idea of righteousness. Some impersonal law above God. Nor is it some nominalistic idea that it's a creation of God. And he's just calling it arbitrarily righteous and he's acting in accordance to whatever he wants and desires to do as if it's some kind of arbitrary thing. This is called nominalism. He created it and named it and says, all right, this is righteousness. So righteousness then is not something that is above God. It is not something that is below God. It is a theistic righteousness. It is his very nature. He is the standard of what is right and what is good. Uh, so we discussed a lot about the righteousness, about his righteous character, about that being the standard of our behavior. Um, be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect, just like when we were talking about the, his love is the standard of our love, his righteousness, his goodness is a standard of our goodness. Uh, and then we started delving into some uh, to the righteous deeds of God uh, about him working salvation and how him delivering the poor and the needy, which is us in our sins, by the way, uh, was, his, was a display of his righteousness. Him saving is his righteousness, his righteous works. And uh, so we talked about the righteous deeds of God. Then we just started trying to define some things that are a little bit problematic Uh, or seem to be problematic, uh, such as he's a jealous God. (laughs) Amen? We talked about his jealousy, uh, that our God is jealous, and it's a righteous jealousy uh, uh, that he bears. We talked about God's hatred and how that is in line with God's righteousness, how he hates uh, wickedness, how he hates iniquity. These six things the Lord does the Lord hate uh he hates the workers of iniquity and so on and so forth and how that doesn't necessarily mean uh that he is he is uh, he is hostile praise the lord at one point in time i was his enemy and he did not have open hostility he did not bring his full judgment down upon me but i was hated as his enemy but yet, at the same time, loved as an object of His grace and mercy, in which He rescued me from that state. So, when we're talking about hate, it's a, it's a comparative idea. Um, uh, it's also it doesn't necessarily mean hostility, and when it talks about hostility, this is not necessarily a negative. Uh, i would expect a righteous and holy and just god to be opposed and even hostile against what is unjust and what is unrighteous and so on and so forth Uh, so this is the character of god's righteousness which brings us to the subject of his love or his wrath rather and is this contradictory to his love and we're going to see again, as we're bouncing off John Frame's uh, systematic theology, uh, I just need to give that disclaimer because I'm just using him as the skeleton by which we're talking about that. And I'll make many references here to his outline. But when we think of wrath, do we think that's a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> like if I was a wrathful person, would I be a, would I be a righteous person? No, no. And uh, and we we're biblically sound for believing this about wrath. For for instance, uh, um, Jesus Christ taught if you have wrath against your brother, uh, if you're hurling insults and judgments toward him, if you're angry—that word zealous, which is so often um, uh, uh, brought forward as, as as an idea of anger or 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 orge or thymus or something like that. But if you're angry with your brother without a cause, then you're sinning. Uh, You and I rarely have the ability to have righteous anger, Uh, at least the exercise of that righteous anger, uh, without it falling into an uncharitable thing. So, Anger is found in a number of New Testament places as a list of sin, right? Uh, put away anger, these are the works of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 20, uh, put away anger in Ephesians chapter 4, and so on. Be angry and sin not, um, is what Ephesians 4 goes on to say, which gives the idea that the sin is not so much, or according to frame here, it's not so much in the anger itself but in our tendency to nurse it. And not to seek reconciliation because of it. That, of course, is not our God's wrath or his anger. So we can definitely sin in our anger. We can definitely sin in our wrath. But we cannot say that about our God. He does not sin in his anger. He does not sin in his wrath or the exercise of it. In fact, what he does in the exercise of his anger and wrath is just righteous and good. So we need to be able to make the differential here. The wrath of God is in response to what? Evil. It's in response to sin. It's in response to that that evil that would, will not be reconciled to him. Will not repent. I, I, I've ran into... Uh, I unfortunately just... I run into these things online all the time and, and one of the things that that uh that is prevalent in today's world, in today's evangelical world, is their hatred of repentance. I just saw something today from someone who is uh who is embracing all forms of sin and says he's an online pastor, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh and um and he embraces all form of sin, but he he was posting something very this very this mor this very morning about um, about the prodigal son and about how how we need to examine this story and see how the prodigal son was this and this and he, and and and, and uh, there's a reason why he left home and blah 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 so on and so forth. But the, but the point of the story was he was a sinner in need of repenting. In fact, the end point of that entire chapter was is God rejoices in sinners that repent. And that was such a, such a person. And this person's desire to, to take things away from the category of sin and deny the, the, the reality and the need of repentance took away his ability even to understand the most rudimentary scriptures. God does not... God is wrathful against sin. And the need of sinners is Repentance a change of mind about, about about what they are doing, which results in them changing the direction for them to realize in their sin that they need to be reconciled to God. That's important. And God will not... She may need help finding Holly. Okay, never mind, never mind. Hey, was she wanting to find Holly? Was Holly not down there? Yeah, they showed up she didn't oh, okay. I just saw her for a second. I was like, oh, she probably was looking for Holly. <laughs> oh, you're all right. You're all right. But, but the point is, is God, is, God has wrath, and, and we, we, we need to draw this out. This is righteous. When it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, that is a truth that needs to be declared. Can we abide a sin? uh, Can we abide a God that that just winks at sin? No, we couldn't. Nor nor could we abide any kind of moral chaos in this world uh, uh, without any just retribution to it. We long for justice, and God is that... God is that just and holy source. He hates sin, and he must judge sin, and it is a fearful thing. Uh, this is eventually, sooner or later, we're going to talk about the doctrine of hell. What is the do- what, what is hell? Hell is a symbol of justice. It's more than a symbol. It's a reality, but it, but, but it symbolized for us this one, this one truth. God's angry at sin. God has wrath against sin. And what do we call hell? It is the fullness of his wrath. And it's a moral imperative for us to flee from the wrath to come. That's a moral imperative of, uh, of ours. And just like his jealousy, uh, we can compare his wrath and jealousy. Jealousy of God is more focused on the specific sin of idolatry or adultery, spiritually speaking. Uh, but wrath opposes sin in general. It's not focused. Jealousy and hatred, said Frame, are modus for his wrath. Wrath is the actual execution of the punishment of sin. And we could thank God already that he has not yet exacted that punishment on those of us that are drawing breath this morning. It hasn't happened. And just like the prodigal, there's space to repent. But the wrath is to come uh, and there's a divine and the scriptures are very clear there is a divine source of wrath our, i couldn't find and i was actually looking for this text a second ago and maybe y'all can help me maybe it's at the end of chapter 12 uh but but wherever it is it's, it says our god is a consuming fire amen he's a consuming fire uh this, so in many places in the scripture uh Uh, speak of the wrath of God, and it's not something can be denied. Uh, There are some theologians that wish to speak of wrath as as kind of the same thing we're talking about as righteousness, kind of this impersonal force uh, where God is just automatically, if you're this, God will automatically do this. If you're this, God will automatically do this. No, it's God that is to be feared in this matter. Uh, We're not talking about an automatic process. Uh, uh, And if we think that we're defending God by saying, well, God's not wrathful. God just has this law. And if you fall on this side of this law, this must happen to you. And if you fall on this side of the law, this must happen to you. No, God is a righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. His character is the standard. Uh, so, so we don't want to def- feel like we have to defend God for, be- for God being a God of wrath. Uh, there's no defense that is necessary. The moment we start speaking of him being holy and speaking of him being righteous, we must speak of him being that consuming fire and to say to people, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, especially in our sins uh frame gives a few points here that are worth pointing out just as a just as this argument that that there's just that wrath is just this impersonal force or natural law whereby transgressions are just automatically uh judged and trying to defend god as if god himself was not the source of wrath uh some of the points there's no shortage of of verses to describe wrath to god We, we, we could look at them all day long uh what uh, what is revealed in the things that are made? Other than the God is a God of wrath, Romans chapter one. His His wrath his, his, and His Godhead are revealed in the things that are made, um, and so on, and so forth. Uh, so so, uh, and then we even get some very strange pictures, especially in Revelation, to bring out the fact that, uh, that 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 one day in the end. There will be people that will run to the dens and caves of the earth, and they will cry out, uh, "Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb." <laughs> imagine that uh, the, the, that the, that that the Lamb. Anybody ever? You, you, the irony of the entire vision there. Uh, can you be imagine being afraid of a Lamb? <laughs> but the world will be one day. So hide us from so so. So the biblical writers are not in doubt about wrath being from God. When the scriptures describe, Frame went on to say, describes the actual course of God's wrath in history, it speaks of God being personally involved in the pouring forth of it. Whether we're talking about the pouring forth of wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the plains... Uh, or, 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 we're, or we're just generally talking about the facts of Romans chapter 1. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. God gives them over unto their affections. God preserves them unto wrath and will pour that wrath out. Um, that God is personally involved. He is generally the source of wrath, especially when its ultimate uh, calling forth. Uh, number three, as indicated in chapter, uh, in, when, in previous discussions, scriptures do, do not teach that God runs the universe through some system of impersonal natural laws. We cannot say, um, we, we, we cannot look as God as a deist. We have a God that's to be feared. Consider the doctrine of hell that is taught in, uh, by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10. Fear not them that can kill the body, but afterwards can do no more. But fear him that's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. When we're confronted with the idea of judgments, we're confronted with the idea that God is personally to be feared when we consider it. And like I said a second ago, there's a moral imperative for us to flee from the wrath to come. So, we're ju- it's just trying to mitigate the problem of evil by saying our God is not a God of wrath is, 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 is to run contrary. It's to pick and choose. It's to be like Thomas Jefferson. I'll cut that part of the Bible out because I don't like it. And I'll cut this Bible part. And, and, uh, and uh, I got this verse that I do really like, but the rest I don't really hold to. Uh, no if we're, this this is the god of revelation, and uh there's a better way for us to understand uh, uh th- this this idea of wrath uh, you and I live in a real moral context, and sin is really horrible <laughs> sin- sin is awful uh and I keep drawing myself back to this idea. If we could consider like the like the most hideous sins that you could imagine. Um, I've seen my share of them and worked in my share of cases and child protection. They're very hideous things. Can you imagine a God not being angry at that? A God not judging that? my God My God is the one that's one that uh is to be feared in this matter of sin, and it's to be, He's to be feared in the matter of my sin. Think about Moses. Moses was called uh to go to Pharaoh, and he was sanctified to that work, and on his way, God met him and opposed him and would have killed him, <laughs> right. Because he wasn't obedient in a small matter. Sin is a big deal. Sin's a big deal not only in the lives of the horrible people that you and I think that do horrible things out there. Sin is a big deal in the eyes of God. Um, In my life, in the things that I believe are small. Um, When God rescued his people, where did he bring them first? First the place where the mountain quaked and they feared as he gave his law God loves righteousness and he hates wickedness you all know the six things that God hates and the seven how many times does that describe us amen amen I like what C.S. Lewis, Lewis uh, said in said of Aslan in uh, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia, that God is good, but He's not tame. <laughs> right? He's not. He's He's to be feared. I've thought about that many times in the last few years as I contemplated this idea of fearing God. If a little tiny snake slithered in here, you would see me screech like a little girl and get up on the things and, and hope someone comes and rescues me. <laughs> Why? Because I'm afraid of snakes. I'm, fear, I, I'm afraid of some of God's creatures. If a crocodile walked in here, straddled in here, I'm going to run and I'm going to be afraid of that. Uh, how much more should I be afraid of the one that created those things? Because that crocodile or that snake's indifferent to me. He's not. Those things are indifferent to what I am morally. He's not. So we have a God to be feared. And thankfully, whatever we have to say about him being a God of wrath, we have the truths of the scriptures, turn to Psalm one hundred and three. I know we've looked at this probably several times when already looking at his at his attributes, but Psalm one hundred and three. And verse eight. The Lord is merciful. And gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I think it was one of the friends of Job that said, and they they said rightly, not everything they said was bad. (laughs) Uh, They said, if God was to exact all of our iniquities, the judgment upon all our iniquities, we would be consumed. And that's what the psalmist is kind of hitting at. If he really dealt with you according to your sin, where would you be? Yeah, I mean, forever. I would be consumed in his wrath without hope. But he has not so dealt with us and it goes on to talk about the greatness of his mercy, but he is slow to anger he is not I, I, I know that uh, that in recent years uh, men like Jonathan Edwards have taken quite a beating in our self-righteous society but but what and and we describe his uh, Sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God, as if it was, a, as if it was some kind of out-of-place horror flick that wasn't that doesn't belong in our Christian understanding of the world. But what is what was he trying to bring out? Was God, in His mercy, is upholding you right now. And there will come a time where He will allow you to slide. But for now, he's slow in his anger. We are, and I'm, I'm thankful about that because like I said with his, when I was talking about his hatred, I was once his enemy. I, I was once someone who was as much an object of righteous wrath of God than anyone else. And he was slow to anger and did not immediately exact from me what I deserved, or towards me what I deserved. He delays his wrath. Why? Because his wrath is not separated from his love. In fact, as Frame says here, so God delays his wrath for the sake of his love. We do, I, I don't have all the answers, and I know there's a difference between his wrath and his love and how those connect and how those... I, I don't have all those answers, but I, I I know that that these are not separated things in the sense that, that that they do not flow from the very same source. How can God be love at all if he ever brings wrath against his, any of his creatures is 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 a refrain that the world will will bring but how can he not how can he be love and not have wrath against that which is evil God loves God's love always observes the boundaries of his righteousness and we talked about this with jealousy. Uh, I, in 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 this adulterous society, we don't even understand this anymore, or at least our culture doesn't seem to. We think love is 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 uh, open borders, <laughs> and it's not. There's a jealousy with love, right? Real, real real love would be real love would have that righteous jealousy, not 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 the, not the, not the kind of jealousy that we see that we think of but a righteous jealousy that wants what is good and right for the object of one's love. So just like his jealousy, just like his hatred, so we could say about his wrath, that his wrath observes the boundaries of his righteousness. And doesn't say it's not this laissez-faire, just do whatever you want, no matter how hurtful it is to others or, or whatever. Um, that's not the righteousness of God. Without the wrath of God against those who finally disbelieve, God's love is no longer righteous. Um, that's, That's an affront to his love to believe so. His righteousness binds together his love and his wrath. God's righteous love must be wrathful. If at the end of history there remain any unrepentant people, and that brings us right back to this idea, there's no need for you to repent. No need. Just continue on. Continue on. And the th- that that's the message of of these online pastors <laughs> that, that 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 are preaching a gospel of non repentance, a gospel that says you can sin, have sin and have God, that you could do that which God hates, and you can throw it up in His face, and God will still Never judge you. There's nothing to repent of. That's the message. And that's a hurtful message. And that's a front to the love of God that calls you to repentance. The goodness of God that calls you to repentance. Uh, I think a lot of these things we've already kind of touched on. Uh, So I'm not going to belabor all this. Uh, God does have wrath but he does have love and uh, the sad part is for those who are not saints uh, this is all the goodness of God that they're ever going to know those who, are, those who will not repent and go on to chase their sins in this life have no expectation of enjoying the love of God then uh, for those of us that are saved, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Uh, but that can never be said of them, the unrepentant. Frame says, once we understand God's love, we know as it is as a tough love, one that respects God's standards of righteousness and that burns in jealousy against those who betray it thought that was a good way to end this up. Um, holiness. So we talked about his, his, under the heading of his righteousness, we've talked about um, his jealousy, his hatred, his wrath. Uh, all of this really kind of collimates in this idea that God is holy. One that is radically different than us that, that word holy, cut off, separated, distinct. We, uh, I think it was uh, Paul Washer that said that we could probably translate that better when the angels were flying around with their faces covered, that they were crying out, holy, 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 that they were crying out, different, different, different. That's our God. He's different, distinct, radically different from the rest of creation. And wherever God is present as Lord is holy. Uh, he said to Moses, "Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground." Why was it holy ground? Is our special places like, uh, like uh, certain mediums and and, and uh, points on the map that are just holy all the time? Uh, that's. I think the new agers—they'll go over. They'll, they'll uh, go to certain places. <laughs> they say the magnetic energy is just right, and it's a place. That's not so. It's holy because God was there, and He was to take off His shoes because God was there, and that made the ground holy. Um we have this distinctness uh what 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 made mount sinai holy as god descended upon that mount and met with moses what made uh mount zion holy is because the perfection of beauty god shined from there uh that that's what made these places holy and when the and you see that picture there in Ezekiel as the holiness of God, the divine presence of God was moving away from Zion, moving away from the holy land. Uh, and, <clears throat> and wherever that that holiness is, it also gives us a proper reaction. What was Moses to do but to refrain in the presence of, what were the people to do at Mount Sinai, but to step back and not touch the holy mountain. Uh, we we see that with the innermost courts of the, of the temple and the tabernacle itself. We have the most holy place and then the holy place outside it. And then the tabernacle itself, which was in a sense, holy, but not as holy as the holy place. And then, then the holy land and the holy creation and so on and so forth. that, 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 that there was this, there was, there was this, idea that the presence of god was a holy presence and the holiness of god is something that is to be recognized by holiness is not only the capacity and the right of god to be distinguished among us but also something that incites in us awe and wonder. God is a light that none of us can truly approach, and this makes him. This is his transcendence, his majesty. When 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 Isaiah saw this, uh, he says his train filled the temple, and uh, and then he heard the angels cry out. And what did he cry out? Woe is me. Uh, and I always think of uh, the classic uh, from Marcy Sproul, the book, of The Holiness of God. If you've never read it, it's a wonderful book. Uh, he talks about what happens when we realize we're in the presence of holiness. We realize how dirty we are, right? Uh, that's why Isaiah cried out, woe is me. That's why Peter cried out, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, is we truly are dealing with when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with that which is holy. I'll come to a close here. But in Christ, we, we see that holiness is not just as ethical or is not just this, this metaphysical idea, but it's also this ethical idea. God's holiness transcends us not only as creatures, but especially as sinners and we realize that when we're in his presence. But in Christ, we're not told to stand back, but we're confronted with a God that is holy, that is drawing us unto himself. And ultimately, when we're talking about his righteousness and his holiness, we're talking about us being drawn into the very presence of that reality. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Where we're no longer told, as in the Old Testament, stand back, stand back. Whereas Moses, I'll I'll make all my goodness to pass and I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock while I pass by. That's not so. We are told that Christ, to come to Christ and Christ will reconcile us to the Father will bring us to the Father, will bring us to God. And the whole of the New Testament is about reconciling us to this holiness, to this righteousness, which is in God. All right, we're going to stop there. And uh, next week, we're going to start talking about the problem of evil. Before we move on talking about about God's righteousness, let's deal with the... Let's deal with the claim that he's unrighteous. If you've ever read someone like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, they're always saying God is unrighteous. God is not holy. God is not right. And why? Because of the problem of evil. (laughs) The so-called problem of evil. That if God is good, then why is there evil in the world? If God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Uh, We're going to answer that objection, and we'll spend a week or two on that. We'll start that next week. We got about 15, 20 minutes before the second hour.